0: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU politics podcast, coming to you right through the European summer. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, political editor at Politico Europe, and this week we have not one guest, but lots of them. We've asked Politico reporters to talk us through the standout stories they've been working on over the summer. We even called up some of them while they were on holiday to get them to tell their stories to you. So, coming up, you'll hear Ginger Hervey and Gillian Deutsch getting under the skin of the tattoo industry. Carmen Porn on her postcard from Romania, reflecting how emigration has changed a village she's known since childhood. Then you'll hear Kate Boland-Guro, who's been on a field trip, literally, to hear how Belgian potato farmers are struggling with the heatwave. And finally, Simon Marx talks about his investigation that revealed how Europe is giving Syria's regime a lifeline by importing phosphate, a key fertilizer ingredient. We'll include links to all of these stories in the listing notes for this edition of the podcast. And of course, we'll also hear from our regular panelists, Alva Finn and Lena Rabarruz, with a roundup of EU WTF moments of the week, including that extraordinary bridge collapse in Italy and the political blame game that followed. So let's get started by diving into the tattoo business. Joining us now on the podcast is Ginger Hervey and Gillian Deutsch. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having us.
0: You wrote a very interesting story about EU moves to introduce new standards into the tattoo industry in Europe, getting under the skin of the tattoo industry. I thought that was a very good headline. (laughs) Now I would love to get under the skin of this story. Ginger, why don't you kick us off? How did you actually come up with this story idea and get the ball rolling?
2: So I cover chemicals, and I the European Chemicals Agency actually has a, a heading on their website called Hot Topics. And so under Hot Topics for chemicals was tattoo ink regulations, and they are looking into the chemicals that are in inks used for tattoos, and they're proposing a restriction for 4,000 different chemicals that are in these tattoos. There are
0: 4,000 chemicals in tattoos?
2: So, yes, actually. And right now there's no EU-wide regulations for what chemicals can be used in the inks for tattoos. And what we found out as we were looking into the story is that some of the inks that are used for tattoos were not originally created for skin. They were created for things like cars or textiles. And tattoo artists will take them and use them for tattoos. And so there's obvious safety risks there.
0: No, I mean like skin, it's a very strong, robust part of the body, like absolutely nothing can go wrong with just like pouring poison onto skin. With injecting them under. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh,
0: Jill, how did you get involved in this story?
1: Well, so I actually have two tattoos, so I think Ginger kind of thought, well, this is a girl who knows something about this industry. Um, And so when Ginger brought me into this story, I was kind of shocked why the chemicals agency would even want to choose tattoos in the first place. It's a niche industry that only affects a certain amount of people. But when I started looking into it, actually 12% of Europeans have tattoos. And it's a growing industry with more and more people checking out Instagram and Facebook for different tattoo artists who post all of their stuff on there. So you're no longer, you you don't have to just rely on the tattoo artist around the corner. You can get all different kinds of designs different artists' work.
0: But that is interesting, because no matter where you go, it seems you don't really have a lot of control over what you'd be putting into your body. I mean, in some ways, it's a bit analogous with people who use different legal and illegal drugs, where sometimes you just don't know what you're taking.
1: And most people just don't even think about it. They're thinking about the design, or how much it's going to hurt them. But most people that I spoke with never even considered
2: what kind of chemicals are actually going to, to be injected in their skin for life. And I think it's one of those things where you, you assume everybody has a tattoo or a lot of people have a tattoo. So it must be safe. There must be some safety standard for it. And really, that's not always the case.
0: Well, that's funny. I mean, culturally, I think the use of tattoos can be very different. Where I was saying just before we kicked off this discussion, I knew my grandfather, I think, had a small tattoo and he'd been in the Navy. And so I always grew up with this impression that tattoos were things that people in the Navy and in prison had. <laughs> and that, you know, quote-unquote normal people didn't have tattoos. And now it's become very prevalent, you know, like really seriously sort of 20, 30, 40% of young people in some countries have tattoos these days.
1: It's definitely been co-opted by, like, the hipster movement. When I was in in high school, we used to call them stick-and-poke tattoos because some people would just, you know, be at a party and then get a a bottle of ink and a needle and they would just... It's yes, definitely not the safest oh uh, safest means Lord. of getting a tattoo. But
0: Gillian, is- we had little ones that we sort of stuck on that came off after twenty minutes in a swimming pool, <laughs> and you got it with candy that you bought at the swimming pool in summer. But that was—you <laughs> were going one step further <laughs> at your high school parties.
1: What were you doing in high school? (laughs) I had some some interesting (laughs) things before.
0: Ginger, what what do you think is the political dividing line here? Is there going to be some kind of backlash where different grassroots organizations or national governments say, get out of our turf, EU, this is for us to decide?
2: I don't know. There is a little bit of paternalism with a lot of chemicals issues. So when you say, okay, if somebody wants to get a tattoo... Maybe common knowledge says it's not that safe to inject chemicals under your skin, and so the EU, you know, people get to make that choice. The EU shouldn't be regulating this kind of stuff. But I don't think politically will be the biggest problem here. The biggest problem is going to be, practically, how do you restrict inks that are being being used <laughs> at parties in high school or being made for cars and textiles, but then being bought by small artists or small-scale artists to inject in people's skin? So that's going to be practically really difficult to enforce. And that's what the chemicals agency is dealing with mostly.
0: Well, it's a fascinating story. Jump on politico.eu and find out how to get under the skin of the tattoo industry. Thank you, Ginger. And thank you, Jill.
1: Thanks. Thank you.
0: Joining me now on the podcast is Carmen Porn, who is one of our great reporters here at Politico Europe. So thank you for joining us, Carmen.
4: Thank you for having me, Ryan.
0: Now, you wrote a postcard from a village called Intusura, which is very connected to your past in Romania. I was wondering if you could paint a picture of the village for us. Where is it? How does it look and feel?
4: Indeed, I grew up in this village, which is about 30 kilometers away from a city called Craiova. It's in the southwest of Romania. It's a very, uh, you know, I call it deep countryside village. I don't know how many people have been to the countryside in Romania, but it's mainly, you know, dirt and gravel road. Most of the people still have their toilet in the back of their yard. Houses have looked like they look now mostly for the past. 50 years they're just long houses with big yards and people mostly live off their own yard their own land where they have a bit of wheat and corn and vineyards. Um, But as I was saying in the story, many of them, especially the younger ones, have gone abroad to earn more money. And things have changed in terms of the fact that, you know, you see many people who have a smartphone and now many of them are on Facebook. You see some of them have started putting double glazed windows on their houses. You know, but I would say it's really cosmetic changes. Most of the main things of daily life in that village haven't changed so much over the past 30 years or so and I always thought to myself that in you know in 30 years from now when I'll come back to the countryside there will be a better road you know we can drive easily here and that hasn't changed so much the road is a bit better but it's not it hasn't improved significantly it still takes almost the same amount of time it took me 25 30 years ago to get from Bucharest to the countryside. One thing that has changed positively is that when it rains really hard you don't get stuck with your car in the mud because they put some gravel. So that's the disappointment on the other side when I go back and things are really familiar and not much has changed so much maybe selfish but it's also reassuring to see that things haven't changed dramatically and that might be selfish for me because then you know it just reminds me of my childhood but for the people living there, they probably would have liked for things to improve much mm-hmm. more by now. One of the people who I quote in the story, um, Eugen Colleen, who's actually the same age as me, and we grew up together until I was seven and I went to Bucharest to school. It was a quite pessimistic vision of, of the future because he went and worked as a seasonal worker in, in Germany. He came back because he, he got sick in the meantime. And he was telling me how bad the healthcare system was in the New York City, in Craiova where he was sharing the room in the hospital with about 10 other men. And, you know, the medicines were in short supply. He had to tip the nurses to change his sheet. He had to go get another treatment in Bucharest because there were just not enough specialized doctors in the nearest city to actually do that treatment or that test for him. And he also said that he has thought about having kids, but he just thinks that by the time he does that, the school in the countryside might close because they're already... 104 children in the whole school right now, so they're actually already considering closing the school and putting the children in the nearest villages. And he didn't seem particularly optimistic. He actually told me that he had started renovating his house, and he regrets that, that maybe he should have just invested that money into getting an apartment in the nearest city in Criova, because that is just easier to get a job there.
0: And what are the numbers like? We've seen in other countries, and I'm thinking Lithuania, Latvia, countries like that, where sometimes up to 20% of the population has left in the last 10 or 15, 20 years, where people have taken advantage of that chance to go and live in the United Kingdom or another EU country or the United States. And sometimes some of those places get to sort of a real survival threshold. You know, Do you really feel like the village risks going under at some point because there aren't enough young people willing to stick around?
4: Totally, yes. There are similar numbers in, in Romania overall and also in the village um, you would get probably one in five people in the countryside who have left over the past decade or so. And that's also replicated at the level of the whole country. We have anywhere between three to five million people living abroad out of a population of roughly 19, 20 million. Most of them have gone to the EU, so many people live in Italy, Italy. In the UK now, and there are also many people, especially from my countryside, that go seasonal workers to Germany. And you see it, you see the people left behind are mostly the old people who cannot, you know, take care of their houses anymore, work their land anymore. And what's really also sad for me is that you see many abandoned houses because in some cases the young people have left, they haven't come back. Their grandparents or their parents have died in the meantime and no one came back to claim the house, to take care of it, um, to do anything to it. And and nature has just taken over the house. And you see trees and bushes just kind of, you know, surrounding it.
0: And is that something that the national government or the regional government tries to have a policy response to? Or is it something that's just considered inevitable?
4: There has been some rhetoric about trying to get people from abroad to come back to Romania. But To be honest, I haven't seen anything really concrete in terms of of programs. There have been some sort of grants given to people that want to come back to Romania and start their own business, but I haven't seen that taken off so much. And as we also, last Friday, when many Romanians living abroad came back to Bucharest to protest against the current government, they weren't so well received by the riot police and by the law enforcement authorities. So, um, so far, it hasn't been anything really strategic and really concrete done to try to lure these people back home.
0: Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast.
4: Me too. Thank you, Ryan.
0: Joining me now is Kate Balangaro, who had a great story earlier in the week, and it was around problems with Belgium's potato crop. Now, as we all know, fries not french fries but merely frites are the belgian national dish they're core to belgium's identity but there's a bunch of potatoes that are rotting in fields during this heat wave that we're having this summer kate bolingaro tell us how did this story happen and what was it like to go hang out with a bunch of rotting potatoes in a belgian field
5: Well, basically we've been following the drought as it's been happening throughout Europe over the last few months. And so for us it was really important to actually go and see a farmer who's been impacted. The potato crop is doing very poorly in Belgium. Belgium relies a lot on rain because it is a rainy country, as we all know. However, there has been not a lot of rain this year, and there's also been an issue with the heat. The temperatures are making the earth very, very hot. And so, basically, it's created a situation where farmers aren't getting enough water for their potatoes. And it means that the potatoes aren't growing, and that if they do grow, they're actually kind of rotting and getting sprouts on them. And that's sucking the nutrients out of the potato, and it's creating this glass potato, as they say in Flemish. And so, basically, I was lucky enough to be able to go and join a local farmer, and he took me out on his potato farm. And I must say, it's quite a sad thing to see somebody who loves their job he's a seventh generation farmer he's working the land his ancestors worked yet he really doesn't know what he's gonna be doing because he lost his entire crop of Charlotte potatoes already which is one that is used for french fries as he's told me so I don't know I mean I'm really sad for them
0: now this makes me wonder how much we can solve with technology and other innovations. You know, how much of this could we predict? And how much could we minimize the impact of things like drought through new smart farming techniques? Did he show you all the things he tried to save the crop? Or was this really a case of someone who was doing things the way they'd always done them and was just at the mercy of the environment?
5: This was definitely someone who was at the mercy of the environment. The big thing is that they don't have irrigation systems, and because it normally rains enough to feed to flood the fields in a good way and make sure that crops can grow without a problem, they just haven't invested in it. And to build that infrastructure right now is quite expensive for farmers to be able to do that. So. Basically, uh, I think there could be new ways of sort of conserving water, and this farmer is very much pushing his local city council in Leuven to be helping farmers to get together to develop a water plan, because apparently they have a plan for when it's a drought, but they don't have a plan to conserve water. They don't have a plan to share water resources or even harvest water. So they are trying to find new ways to address this water shortage, which is going to continue to be a problem in Europe.
0: And did we get further down the supply chain into the fruit industry itself? Are we going to be running out of those fries at some point in the summer here in Belgium? Or is it a case that the single market works great and we'll just get the potatoes from somewhere else?
5: Well, fruit representatives are quite concerned. They haven't really given up hope that there will be rain. We have had a bit cooler temperatures now.
0: Mm. Hope isn't a very good strategy, though, is it?
5: You can do a rain dance. Sometimes that (laughs) works. But... I think that they're staying optimistic and hoping that there could be an uptick before the harvest happens. However, potatoes are going to be smaller either way. So I think they're trying to find ways to manage that. One thing that they did say is that this is impacting crops across Europe, Germany as well as being hit by this, Poland, Ireland, big potato producing countries. So I don't think that Belgium is necessarily going to be able to make up its manque de frites by importing potatoes from its neighbors.
0: Well, Kate, we all know now we've got to go in and get those fries before they run out at the local freet stand. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, and may the freet be with you.
5: Thanks for having me, Ryan.
0: Simon, welcome to EU Confidential. Hi, Ryan. Now, you've got this cracking story that we can talk about for a few minutes, where you demonstrate that Greece is throwing an economic lifeline to Syrian President Assad and his regime by reviving phosphate imports. Now, phosphates are mostly used in fertilizers in Europe, and it was a big business until the war in Syria closed the mines, and President Assad and his regime became persona non grata in Brussels. But imports of them have tripled in recent months, your story showed, despite sanctions against Syria and a range of other sanctions that we can explore as well. So my first question is, why are the Greeks doing this? Why can't they get phosphate from someone who doesn't bomb children?
6: Right. Well, I mean, Greece and Syria, they have a long track record of having this relationship together. So before the war really kicked off in Syria, Greece was already importing lots of phosphate rock from these specific mines in the central part of Syria. And when ISIS took control of these parts of the country several years ago, obviously that trade then dried up. And it wasn't until two years ago when, when Russia came in and sort of dissipated ISIS in certain areas of the country that they took over the mines and this commercial flow of phosphate started sort of being uh, reenacted again between Greece and Syria. So in a way, it's a sort of a story of an old historical relationship being reignited.
0: Now, there's a big Russia connection here, obviously. And would it be going too far to say that basically these Greek interests are laundering the phosphate by getting it sent through Russian ports? And an obvious question in my mind is, how does this whole process not somehow breach either the Russia sanctions or the sanctions the EU has against the Syria regime?
6: Right. So, I mean, the company behind or who has control of these two big mines in Syria is called Transgaz. Transgas. Uh, it's a company that the EU has looked at very closely when it's issued its own list of sanctions on people and businesses but didn't make it onto the EU list. It is on the US list of sanctioned companies. So legally speaking, you know, this trade, there's no real issue in terms of doing business with the EU, but legal experts say the mere fact anyone is doing business with a sanctioned entity in the US is a huge risk because the US can then go after whoever does business with the sanctioned entity.
0: It's like so, a small version of the Iran-sanctioned threats that Trump's been making, where, I mean, that's been enough to scare big German car companies out of Iran, for example. So you, right. you can kind of see how this same dynamic would play out with phosphate in Greece.
6: Exactly. There's a real potential for spillover effects. If, say, a major trader or a bank is actually doing this trade very discreetly, then they would be at risk of being placed on the U.S. sanction lists. And obviously that would affect their global operations. And that's one thing when I spoke to traders for the story and various people in the fertilizer industry, and they were very, very cautious to reveal who is actually doing this trade because someone has to be administering it. Mm
0: -hmm. And now this is all part of a broader set of what I call the chemical wars in Brussels as well, where people are agitating at a grassroots level against more and more different chemicals and products made out of chemicals. And one of those debates is around something called cadmium, which tends to appear in fairly high levels in phosphate from other countries. And so there are different EU interests that want to essentially get rid of or severely limit cadmium. And that might have the impact of pushing people towards phosphate from countries like Syria, Russia, and so on. Is that your understanding of it?
6: Yeah, exactly. So if the EU this year potentially under the Austrian presidency decide to lower the amount of this toxic heavy metal called cadmium in in its fertilisers, then all of a sudden the markets in the likes of Morocco, Tunisia, Senegal, will be at threat because they have very high levels of the stuff. And that will mean that European fertilizer companies will look to places where it's a lot lower. And they're pretty limited. And these are pretty major resource. And so they could be forced just to do business with mines which are being handed out by the Assad regime.
0: One last question was about how you went about doing the story. I mean, I don't want you to to betray any sources or anything like that. But how did you find out about all of this? Was it leaked documents, anonymous tips? Were you out there doing your own sleuthing on the internet and you saw a strange graph somewhere and and it caught your interest?
6: Yeah, well, because I cover the whole Cadmium file in Brussels. It's one of these bizarre files, which on the face value is very technical. But behind the scenes, you see that there's lobbyists out there for Russia, for some of Russia's biggest private fertilizer companies, There's lobbyists for the Moroccan royalists out there because they have a lot of stakes in the Moroccan state reserves. And actually, it was a tip from a source operating in this environment who said, you know, you might want to have a look at the business Europe is doing with Syria. And so I did, and merely by looking at the trade data. So that's public. You can request this from Eurostat. And lo and behold, I saw that, in fact, yes, indeed, business between Syria, phosphates and Greece specifically have been steadily rising at the beginning of this year. So it's going to be very interesting to see how much more it rises. And I'm definitely going to sort of follow this aspect of who is doing the trading. What's the legality around this? And why are people being so damn secretive about it?
0: Excellent. I mean, there's nothing more politico than putting a face to an obscure process. So a big thumbs up from me for that one. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Simon. Thanks a lot, Ryan. now we're welcoming back the brussels brains trust hello alva finn hi ryan hi lena hi lena Rabirous.
3: good
7: morning ryan good morning alva
0: Yes, well, it's an interesting week. We have several WTF moments to discuss. I don't think we should delay. We can begin with this Italian bridge incident. Maybe that's a WTF moment in and of itself. But what I wanted to talk about was Matteo Salvini's response. He's the populist right wing deputy prime minister of Italy, and also the Five Star Movement being quite heavily involved in the decisions and the rhetoric that may have prevented some of the repairs to that bridge that were clearly very needed. What we had was Salvini essentially saying that it was EU budget rules, which led to a situation where Italy didn't have enough money to repair a bridge. I could unpack that in myriad ways, but I'm going to throw it over to you two first. Alva?
3: Yeah, it just is classic populism trying to blame the European Union for something that it should have done itself. The European Union actually gives money to a lot of member states to help with infrastructure like that. So it's classic populist leaders saying, oh, it's Brussels' fault. And I just don't agree with it. And I think if he manages to sell that to people in Italy, it makes me even more worried for the future, to be honest, because there must be very low sentiment towards Europe if they believe that crap.
7: It's a tragic because if this gentleman projects himself as a leader to lead the future of such an important European country as Italy into blaming the others and not taking any sort of responsibility. Of course, this is an accumulated problem for a bridge it's uh, 50 years old. But reading the stories in the media, apparently it's not the first time that this bridge come out to the spot in order to be repaired and fixed. And apparently they have stopped so many times they posed all infrastructure projects. Without thinking, at the end of the day, the human, It's astonishing that as well, he wouldn't care about the population who voted for him and for his party. Blaming Brussels, it's the simplest, the easiest way. No actions, no plans, no even a sympathetic statement for the victims and for their families. So it it, it is a cheap shot, if I can say that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wanted to unpack it from the angle that it's it's a very clever tactic because what he's confusing is an unpopular policy, which is the idea that the EU puts limits on national budgets with Italy's own budget choices and ignores that the EU has actually invested a lot specifically in Italian infrastructure. So I wanted to list some of that because this one really did make me angry. So there are four different ways that the EU has contributed to Italy's infrastructure recently. The first is a project called the Connecting Europe Facility, where most of the money goes to transport infrastructure and Genoa is actually at the end of one of the corridors. So there's EU money available for dealing with infrastructure problems in Genoa. Then something that's known as the Juncker Investment Plan is a massive infrastructure program. It was laughed at when it was developed, but it's proven to be overall quite a success. And Italy has access to money from that fund as well. Then there's the direct grants that the EU gives via regional subsidies. Many people say that that's an inefficient way to support poorer regions or regions with infrastructure needs, but it happens nevertheless. And then in April, the EU approved more than 8 billion euros of infrastructure spending in northern Italy, uh, but that comes out of Italy's own money. So the idea that the EU doesn't give its own money or prevents Italy from spending its own money um, is really a quite ridiculous one. And Italy is a very rich country. It might be a disorganized and divided country, but in European and global terms, it's a rich country. So if it knows that there is a bridge that needs fixing, it has the money to spend on fixing that bridge. And if it doesn't spend it, that's down to Italy. It's not down to Brussels.
3: I love that. A fake news fact check from Ryan Heath.
0: There we go. Maybe we need to move on. We're getting the wind up from our executive producer team on the other side of the table. We have uh, another situation in Romania. It's a little bit disturbing at the general level and because of the specific reason that Romania will be holding the rotating presidency of the EU in the first six months of 2019. And that is a situation where we saw Romanian police, uh, presumably on instructions from the Romanian government, cracking down on a huge anti-government protest that took place this week.
3: Yeah, it reminded me of earlier protests that we have talked about, for example, in Spain. It's worrying that this is happening because the EU is constantly basically releasing statements about other countries who have treated protesters in a similar manner. The situation in Romania is getting worse and worse. The relationship between the Commission and Romania on things like judicial reform, as we know, is heating up. I think that some people are now trying to put Romania in the same bracket as other rogue member states like Hungary and Poland. So it's just not good news from Romania. Also, it showed up a bit of tension within Romanian politics because not everybody feels the same way about this because all the protests were about anti-corruption. They had put together quite a good anti-corruption team, but then it's being a little bit dismantled by the government. However, the president doesn't agree with that. And now there are probes into the violence that happened uh, at the protests. So I think it's one to watch.
0: Yeah, a little bit of background before we bring you in, Lena. The president is aligned with the liberal grouping inside the European Union, and the government is a socialist government. So this is what you might argue as a left-wing problem rather than a right-wing problem. We associate the governments of Poland and Hungary with being populist, nationalist, and difficult from a right-wing perspective. And in Romania, it's, it's kind of the other end of the political spectrum. And there's really no love lost between those two sides at all. Lena.
7: It gives you uh, this perspective of how, when a country becomes a member of the EU, how much the EU teaches the country and integrates the country on the values, on the rule of law, on democracy, on many things. Now, we have a socialist political party and they won in in Romania, but at the end of the day, since 2007, Romania uh, has become a member. And after 12 years now, they are going to be the president of the EU for the coming six months, which will be historical as well because we have Brexit. So what sort of work during these 12 years The EU has worked on a grassroots level, on a mentality level, on real actions with these countries in order to adapt and really integrate within the EU. So we don't see such things. And how much becoming a member of the EU has reflected on the day-to-day life on the average citizen in Romania?
0: is it maybe a case that the eu has most leverage when people are waiting to get into the club when they're queuing at the front door but once people are in it has much less control over those countries and so the lesson is really you've got to be tough before people get in because then that your best shot is gone
7: precisely and when we have now uh, the western balkans and we'll see if the eu is going to do the same thing or they're going just to make sure they're protecting their territories and making sure that russia is at a certain point not getting closer and closer so wait to see for the eu on this
0: well, speaking of the Western Balkans, we had an extraordinary situation in the last week of a playwright from Kosovo, Yeta Naziraj, who was applying to get visas into several European countries, also into Romania to appear at a very famous theatre festival that takes place in Romania each year. And he was rejected by all of those countries. and The reason why that is a bit of a punch in the gut for people in Kosovo is that they have been seeking visa liberalisation and easier access into European countries. And Yetan himself was awarded European of the Year by the EU office in Kosovo, and he can't get into the European Union. So I don't know what sort of message that's sending, but I thought it had to be mentioned.
3: Yeah, it speaks to a kind of frustration that I think a lot of people in the region feel around Some of the processes about EU membership, but also visa liberalisation. And actually, it has just been announced that they will liberalise visa process for Kosovo. But I think it's important to remember that there are many problems in the background between Kosovo and members of the European Union, which make these processes much more difficult for them. I don't think it's necessarily a very simple irony because Kosovo is very individual, I think, in the region in that many member states, well, five, at least, do not recognise Kosovo. So there is that... Spain, so
0: but- for example, because of the Catalan issue, is not going to start issuing visas to people from Kosovo until it's forced to.
3: Yeah, exactly. So the Commission have basically said that the roadmap has been fulfilled and Kosovo has done a lot of very difficult things. For example, there was a demarcation of border between Montenegro, which actually started protests and wasn't greeted very well by the population in Kosovo. But they made those difficult choices and they should be rewarded, I think with visa liberalization but let's see what happens when it goes to the council and the parliament because these underlying problems about kosovo as a state will continue to be debated i think Mm.
7: you know there are two parts one technical and one political in order to get your visa uh, schengen liberalization and lately they have announced that kosovo has met most of the criteria possibly on the political level and possibly it shows, as always, that the institutions, they don't talk to each other, that on a political level, they have all the support. We have beautiful announcements from different commissioners. And then on the technicalities, you have the passport, you have the identity cards, you have the like, frontiers. do they have
0: biometric uh,
7: pa- exactly. compatibility? Many, many, th- it's a huge criteria, not only from political part. And again, it shows us that, for instance, they are asking Europeans to go and visit the Western Balkans. They are asking people to to Kosovo on the European External Action Service website, while the Kosovo people can stay there, but they don't need to come here, you know, it, it shows you the discrepancies as always, as always.
0: Okay, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thanks so much for joining us, Alva and Lena, And remember... If you have not already joined the EU Confidential community, you can do it in just one minute. Go to politico.eu forward slash registration, tick the EU Confidential box, and we will send you the podcast each week to your inbox and invite you to any podcast-related events. Of course, podcasting is a team effort, so a big thank you to Andrew Gray, Nicole Fallett, and Wei Dong Lin.